0: recording okay all right good morning everybody good morning. I'm just gonna get right into it I will uh, pray real fast before we start and then <laughs> true let's <laughs> take half an hour pray yeah <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Father, thank you for the opportunity to do this. Um, help us to have listening ears, to be open to your word. Help us to bring good fruit out of this teaching, this conversation, um, and that it produce fruit in this community. Help us to have wisdom and understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so as titled, we're going to be talking about the importance of fellowship Uh, the reason why we're going over this is because it is very common on both both sides of the spectrum for believers to way overemphasize church in terms of the, the, the type of church that they believe is absolutely essential. The other extreme is to way underemphasize it. And so I'd like to talk about its importance in a well-balanced manner and explain what fellowship between believers is actually meant to look like. Because if you way overemphasize just like a Sunday attendance to you know, a gathering, and that's missing the point. But we are meant to emphasize the quality of that gathering, which would be the fellowship itself. What is that supposed to look like? Why is it important? And what's the danger of not having it or neglecting it? So that's what we'll be talking about. And any questions that come up, more than welcome to ask as usual. And if this is a, if this is something, you know, those of you who Either our leaders in our house churches or you find this topic to be of greater importance for you, feel free to share uh, share it with others. We are like normal. We put all the teachings that are recorded on YouTube so they can be shared uh, for the benefit of those who are not here. So we'll start at the top. Number one, we're going over the purpose of fellowship. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at Hebrews 10 quite a bit here we're going to break down some details okay all right Let's look at this first bullet point here. The purpose of fellowship with believers is, number one, to help each other stay focused on the truth without wavering. So we're going to look at Hebrews 10, starting in verse 23 is where we'll read. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So this is stated as the intention So what we're about to read after this is meant to accomplish what has just been stated. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Another way of saying that is to be strong in your faith, strong as a believer. Verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting, exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, if we pause there for a moment, notice he says in verse 24, consider one another. So he just got done saying, don't waver. And now he's saying, consider other people too. So you don't want other people to waver either. He says, the way that you accomplish that is not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Then he says, do it more as you see the day approaching. The day, capital D, is talking about the end of the world, the second coming. So the closer we get to the end, the more we should be meeting. And the more important our gatherings become, the closer we get to it. I think it's kind of ironic that the more the world progresses towards that end, the more impersonal we have become. And this is saying the opposite which is that the more important it will be to gather and the world's going the opposite direction. I just think that's kind of interesting. We'll get to that a little bit more later. So that means, again, first bullet point, to help each other stay focused on the truth without wavering is of great importance. We have to consider one another one another in order to do that. Next bullet point, purpose of fellowship with believers, is to help each other walk in more love and do greater works for the kingdom. So we're going to look at 24 in Hebrews 10, which we just read. We'll just look at it again. Consider one another in order to, it says, stir up love and good works. So we're going to get into what it means to stir up love and good works because a lot of believers don't know the definition of that. So we're going to look at that. The other scripture listed there, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12, says that God has given... Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, it says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the reason why we have, it says in in that passage, leaders of those roles posted in the church is so that believers can be equipped to do the work of the ministry. So if believers are not being better equipped to do the work of the ministry, to do the work that God has called us to do that we're not accomplishing one of the primary purposes of gathering as and being a church, being the body of Christ. So there's focus on the work itself. Back to Hebrews 10:24, it says to stir up love and good works. Let's define that. So that's that sub bullet point here. So you guys have probably heard the term of people say, you know that that stirred me up or that made me feel stirred up. Sometimes that is used in a negative way, sometimes in a positive way. Interestingly enough, this Greek word is actually the the negative. And I'll explain how this fits into it. But on that sub-point, the Greek word for stir up in Hebrews 10.24, in case you're interested in what the Greek word actually sounds like and how it's pronounced, I'm not going to attempt it because it's too long. But KJV says to provoke one another. unto unto love and good works. It uses a stronger word, means provoke. And that's a more accurate translation because the Greek word for stir up means to incite, dispute, or contend. In other words, believers need to fight to keep each other focused. It's a stronger word, contend for it. Fostering more love and good works in each other sometimes requires a little bit of aggression or force. Positively, this means... Believers should be faithful not only to comfort and encourage one another, but also to correct and and rebuke one another where necessary. We will never help each other grow if we don't know how to give and receive rebukes or constructive criticism. So that gives us kind of two ways of looking at this. The first thing that was stated was that we have to fight to keep each other focused. That includes being willing to talk about the harder things. That's correction, constructive criticism, rebuke, and things of that nature. We'll look at these Proverbs real quick. Proverbs chapter 15. So love and good works, producing that in each other, encouraging the growth of it in each other is not a light or easy thing. Has to be stirred up, has to be provoked or contended for. It doesn't just happen naturally. We have to fight for it. Proverbs 15, 31 says, the ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. So if we want to be wise and abide among the wise, we need to hear rebuke. Listen to it. Look at Proverbs 28, verse 23. Proverbs 28, 23 says, he who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. So we're not supposed to be believers who the only thing we ever say to each other is nice things. I mean, quote unquote, nice things. It says that we have more favor, more grace from each other. We'll have more, more power, more effectiveness if we're faithful to rebuke, it'll be better in the end. In other words, if we hear rebuke. It's kind of like we need to accept the responsibility. Me, to potentially rebuke someone, else, share something, and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Ex- accept the responsibility to rebuke. Yeah. Definitely. Let's look at this one in Psalms. Psalms one forty one. This is my favorite. about about rebuking Psalms 141 verse 5 says let the righteous strike me it shall be a kindness and let him rebuke me it shall be as excellent oil let not or let my head not refuse it So it's considered kindness, love, to be rebuked. And he specifically says, let the righteous person do that. We would expect that people that we are involved with in fellowship in the church are considered the righteous. So we're supposed to welcome rebuke from people that are part of our fellowship and consider it a kindness. So these scriptures are given as examples where the Bible supports rebuke and correction as a means of inciting, disputing, or contending towards greater love and greater works for the kingdom of God. So keep in mind, growing to be more like Jesus, growing in your love and doing greater works is something you have to fight for. It's not going to come naturally or easily. And that's going to require believers telling you the truth when it's hard to hear. If it were easy to hear, then we wouldn't be contending. Whereas Hebrews specifically says you have to contend for it. Amen. Okay. Next point here. The purpose of fellowship with believers is to assemble together often to deepen relationships and keep each other close. So back to Hebrews 10. We're going to look at another point about specific words in there. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 25 says, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but," key word here, "...exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." So I want to look at the word exhorting here, the Greek word, because that word exhorting is the same root word where we get the helper, uh, meaning the Holy Spirit, from. So when Jesus says, the helper who will come in my name, the spirit of truth, John 16 and John 14 talks about this, parakletos is that Greek word. That's where, we, what, where helper comes from. This word for exhorting is that comes from that same word or the root word of that word for helper. And it means to call near, to invite, invoke, beseech, call for, and lastly, it can mean to comfort, exhort, entreat, or pray. In other words, to exhort someone has two meanings. It can mean to call to someone to capture their attention and bring them in close to you. That's the call near or invite part of the word. The second meaning is using your words to comfort somebody and grabbing their attention with your words in order that they would be ultimately drawn closer to the truth because that's the context of what we're reading here. If you look at both of those definitions, or I should say the one definition, two meanings, to that word exhorting one another, it doesn't just mean... In fact, it doesn't mean at all to say nice things to each other. Exhorting one another means to call each other near to each other and build each other up. That's what exhorting one another means. That's why he says in the same breath, don't forsake assembling together. Because by calling a meeting, if you will, gathering together, that is exhorting one another. Because we're keeping each other close. When you're gathered, speak in such a way that is helpful to each other. That's why the Holy Spirit is called the helper. So if you want to be like the Holy Spirit, then obeying this scripture is a great starting point because it's the same Greek word. You will be helpful to your fellow believers by calling each other near, staying close, gathering often, and speaking what will edify them. I think it's worth noting that Edifying, and we'll talk about this more later, but edifying is not the same word as encouraging. Edifying, by definition, simply means to build up or construct. It's a construction word. We're being constructed or built up towards the image of Christ. So anything that you say to another believer that ultimately helps them be more like Jesus is edifying them. It's not always going to feel great to be edified, but in the end, like Proverbs says, there is more favor afterward to rebuke a man if it leads to them being more like Christ. Amen? Again, so assemble together often to deepen relationships and keep each other close. That's what exhorting one another means. Next. The purpose of fellowship with believers is to grow in maturity, knowledge, and unity together until we, together, are being all that Christ was on earth during his ministry. We'll turn to Ephesians 4 for this. Ephesians 4 and in verse 13, why do we need to be edified? It says, verse 13, until we all come to, here's the first thing, unity of the faith. Then it says the knowledge of the son of God, lastly, to a perfect man or the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's about maturity. So you've got unity, you've got knowledge and you've got maturity. as I have it written here to grow in maturity, knowledge and unity together until we're being all that Christ was on earth during his ministry. That's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the fullness of Christ would be everything that Jesus is, was, or did while he was here on earth. Cause that's the only concept we have of Jesus right now. All we have for what Jesus is presently in heaven is an illustration in the Book of Revelation of having eyes like a flame of fire and a countenance like lightning, and all, we we can't we can't really imagine that yet. What we do have that we can imagine and conceptualize is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that description of how Jesus lived while he was on Earth. That is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ we are going for as a church. So believers should be together doing and being everything that Jesus did and was during his earthly ministry. If it was his, his healing, his raising the dead, the miracles, the, the teaching, the love, the selflessness he showed, all of that should be evident as unified body of Christ. The further we are away from that unity, the less like Jesus the church will be, which then it stands to reason that if we're going to be all that Jesus was on earth, We would have to have the maturity that Ephesians 4 talks about, the knowledge of the Son of God, and of course, the unity of the faith. So we need to be assembling together, being in fellowship with each other, so that together we grow in maturity, knowledge, and unity. If we are left without each other, we are left without the very thing that Paul says here is needed to accomplish everything that Jesus accomplished. Without the fellowship of the church, we have no way of fulfilling this passage. If we can't learn to walk as a single unit as Christ together, then we're not going to be doing what Jesus did at all. You can't do it by yourself. We have to do it together. And that's why we have to learn to get along. Amen. We're going to be with each other for eternity. So we should probably figure it out now. It's on. Corporate fellowship
1: responsibility.
0: Mm. Those that we interact with in the church. hmm hmm Yep. So. Corporate responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, his microphone's turned on. It's. It could be. Sure. Okay. It's all right. Yeah, so it's a corporate, not just a personal responsibility, was his point there. All right. Now, also in Ephesians 4, on uh, focusing on verse 14. Next bullet point here is the purpose of fellowship with believers is to help keep each other out of childish behaviors or being easily deceived or easily led astray. So look at verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And we'll read 15 too, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ. So again, that's the growing up part. That's the maturity part. But part of the reason why we need to be mature is so that we're not like children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. So this is referring to the type of childishness, meaning being easily deceived or led astray. There's a proverb that says that the simple, meaning the foolish, believe every word, which is this idea that everything you hear, you take in and regard it as either truth in your life or take action on it or consider it longer than you should just because you don't know better. Maturity means we know the difference between good and evil, like Ephesians 5 says, we can discern between good and evil. We know that what we're hearing is truth and when what we're hearing is evil, or falsity. We can distinguish the two, follow after the truth and not follow after what's evil or what's false. That is a quality of maturity to be able to do that. Immaturity would be believing everything you hear or considering everything you hear. And this is where it gets really deceptive and how believers can be led astray. Because there are many cases when believers will hear something that sounds biblical, sounds right, sounds spiritual. But because of a lack of a depth of maturity of that understanding, they can be tricked into following something or believing something that is not truly of the truth or of God. So that's why we have to be careful and pursue maturity with one another. And Ephesians 4 in context is saying that we have to have each other in order to do this. That's why it says in verse 16, after it says we have to grow up, verse 16 says, the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. According to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So if we're going to grow, every part has to give its supply. If every part doesn't give its supply, then we're not going to grow to the point that he's talking about here, which is, again, maturity, knowledge, unity, so that we're doing and being everything that Jesus did and was during his earthly ministry. Amen. Next point here, that we, the purpose of fellowship with believers is to Learn how to love God better by loving his people despite their flaws. Let's go to first John chapter four for that. First John chapter four. We're going to look at verse 20. First John. Yep. So I imagine that we'd all want to learn how to love God better, but it's important to recognize that the Bible teaches the way you learn how to love God better is actually by the love you show to each other, to people. First John four, verse 20 says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother. Also keep reading into chapter five, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves him who begot or everyone who loves the father also loves him who is begotten of him. In other words, loves his children too. So if you say that you love God and you're telling the truth, you will also love his children, which is all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Making no distinction between one over the other. If you love God, you'll love his people. So if we isolate or avoid fellowship, another thing you're avoiding is dealing with people. If you're going to be a church, you're going to deal with people. Amen. And dealing with people has its perks, it has its challenges. You're going to face differences in perspective, differences in belief, differences in lifestyle with people. But if we can't learn through those challenges to love all kinds of people, then we're not going to be able to love God because that's the point of this passage. If you want to grow in love for God, you have to be in fellowship in order to learn how to love people. If you avoid people, you can't learn how to love them, right? So we need to be around people for this purpose. And the challenges we face in doing so are for this purpose. So, to We need to be in fellowship to learn how to love God better by loving his people despite their flaws. This doesn't mean the flaws will stay, but we still have to face them. Next point here. Another purpose of fellowship with believers is to edify and support each other. In other words, meet needs and make each other more like Jesus through contributing our resources and spiritual gifts. So we don't need to turn to specific verses in here because I just put the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 12 and then chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. That's something you guys can read on your own time if you want more details about this. But 1 Corinthians 12 is about gifts, spiritual gifts, and deals in detail about what it means that every part has a supply to give. Meaning that in short, the Holy Spirit has given every individual believer a spiritual personality of sorts that allows them to contribute one piece of the character and the power of God to each other and to the world. Just like in the world, people are, typically really enthusiastic about talking about their personality and who they are and what makes them them and living their best self and all that. The Bible does talk about a biblical version of that, which is you are uniquely created spiritually as well. God has given you a unique supply, but it's ultimately about serving others. It's not about you or your glorification. It's about glorifying the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus but you do have a unique spiritual personality as a way of way of thinking about it. 1 Corinthians 12 deals with what all of those are, what the spiritual gifts are. And it says that it's for the edification of the church that we should seek to excel. We'll look at uh, just a couple of verses in there. I'll just read them off you just so that you have the references. But 1 um, Corinthians 12 in verse seven says, but the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. What God gives you is meant to benefit everyone in the church. Then if you look in, let's see here. Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, I don't have this written on the outline, but you can add it if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 12 says, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. It's always about the church. Never says seek spiritual gifts or walk in them for yourself or your own benefit. Always says it's about others, specifically the church. Since you are zealous for spirit. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. So keep in mind if how God has wired you spiritually and the gifts he has given you are always meant to be for the profit and benefit of the church by separating from the church or neglecting fellowship with the church, that, that is the epitome of selfishness because you are a member of, of the body, or many members, but one body. 1 Corinthians 12 also talks about that these parts are compared to human anatomy, eyes, nose, ears, toes, fingers. Anytime you have a part of your body that's wounded or malfunctioning, it affects the rest of your body. If you've ever had one leg in pain and then you limp and put more weight on the other leg, then you end up hurting the other leg because you're not supposed to put all your weight on that one leg. Right? Right? <laughs> And that's, that's just how your, body, that's how your body works. It's the same way with the body of Christ. If what you contribute, you devalue or downplay, and therefore you isolate, that's not ultimately with consideration for others. That's just considering yourself. It's, a, it's selfishness. So we need to edify and support each other and meet each other's needs and help each other be more like Jesus through contributing our resources and spiritual gifts. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talks more about resources, giving your practical supply, such as finances, for example. That's another thing to consider. That's also part of what you contribute to the body. It's not just your, your spiritual tools, but your financial practical tools as well. That's included. And then that uh, point there with the asterisk, I mentioned this already, but I'll just state it again as a reminder. That we will need to gather with one another more and more the closer we get to the end of the world and the return of Christ. Hebrews ten twenty five is what states that.
2: Um, In first or in uh, Hebrews ten twenty three, he talks about. He starts out with uh, the confession of our hope. Um, Is there a way to simply define that? I mean. I think the Bible's kind of big, so how would you just uh, put that into a compact phrase? Is that like Hebrews six, one and two?
0: Yeah, great question. So if you look at Hebrews ten in what it says earlier talks about Christ, states the confession. Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, drawn near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, continues on. He is confessing what we believe and what we have. If you compare that to Hebrews 6, it says, that's 7. In Starting in verse 18, says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So our hope, which is the anchor for our soul, is Jesus. Jesus is the hope. The confession of our hope would be what we believe about Jesus, which is described in Hebrews 10, that he's the one whose blood sprinkled our conscience. He's the one who washed us with pure water. He's the one that gave us access behind the veil to the presence of God. He's, he's the way, the truth, and the life. Right. That's the confession. The hope itself is Christ. So holding fast the confession of your hope would be never stop believing the truth about Jesus and trusting in him alone as the way to salvation. So if you ever drift away from that truth, you'd be drifting away from hope itself, which is the very thing you have as your security. What I just read the reference, Hebrews 6 verses 18 through 20. And then the other one was just the verses immediately preceding verse 23 in Hebrews 10, uh, verses 19 through 22. So Hebrews 6, verses 18 through 20, and then Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. Was that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that answer the question, Laura? <coughs> yep. Okay. Let's move forward here. Number two, a main point number two anyway. Believers who isolate or neglect fellowship are more likely to flounder in, the, in their faith and be deceived by the enemy. So now we're talking about the danger of neglecting fellowship after we've just gone over the purpose and importance of fellowship. Let's read this off again, that believers who isolate or neglect fellowship are more likely to flounder in their faith and be deceived by the enemy. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5 for this. I'll read the bullet point that is immediately following this, and that will get us into 1 Peter. When a person isolates, the enemy has greater access to them. 1 Peter 5.8 explains why in saying this. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Nine says, then resist him steadfast in the faith. The reason why this proves the point that when a person isolates, the enemy has greater access to them is because it compares the devil to a lion that seeks whom he may devour. If you know anything about lions, they only seek to devour the member of the flock or the herd that strays from the multitude. So when a younger member of the herd, one that's weaker, starts to drift away from the crowd, from the mass that stays together, they're vulnerable. And that's always what predators go after first. Is that one. And that's why he compares the devil to a lion. Because that's his strategy. He goes after the weaker. Which usually results in greater isolation. So therefore when a person isolates the enemy. Has greater access to them. I'll keep reading on this point here. And this is going to get us into 2 Timothy 4 verses 3 through 4. So we'll turn there next. When a person hears only their own desires and does not continually expose themselves to the comments and corrections from a diversity of believers, they will be more easily turned away from the truth. Let's look at Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read this point again. When a person hears only their own desires and does not continually expose themselves to the comments and corrections from a diversity of believers, they will be more easily turned away from the truth. Second Timothy four explains this starting in verse three says for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Then it says, according to their own desires. So what's the focus? Their own desires, what they want, right? So the opposite of your own desires, in many cases, is sound doctrine. You will find when doctrine is sound, it typically contradicts what you want. But it will be the truth, right? So then it says, according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and be turned aside to fables. So, being turned away from the truth starts with simply walking according to your own desires. That's how it starts, where you put more emphasis on what you want and prefer rather than what sound doctrine is. And a person who is neglecting fellowship is seeking after only their own desire. And Proverbs says this, which gets to this next point on the list. Neglecting or separating from fellowship is foolish, selfish, arrogant, and not of the spirit of God. That's pretty strong language there. <laughs> but we just read a few scriptures about it. Let's look at this Proverbs 18 verse 1 real quick. This is where I was saying how you seek your own desires when you when you neglect fellowship. This proverb says exactly that. Proverbs eighteen verse one it says, A man who isolates himself seeks what? His own desire. Again, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. Then it says, He rages against all. Wise judgment, not some, all. Why? Because Proverbs also says, in a multitude of counselors there's safety. So if you are neglecting fellowship, you're raging against all wise counsel or all wise judgment. You're no longer safe because you're not in the body, you're in the flock, you're separated. It makes you vulnerable to the enemy. And puts you in the position where you're seeking only your own desire. And according to 2 Timothy 4, when you seek your own desire, what happens? You then gather people around you who have your desires. And they turn you away from the truth. All because you didn't think church was that important. That's how it starts. Right? Now I'm not talking about, again, this isn't about Sunday attendance. And I'm not teaching this to make more people show up on Sunday. Okay? Or any day. The point of this is to emphasize the importance of being with believers, period. To encourage, correct each other, hear teaching, be confronted about things, be challenged on things. All of that is what's important. And that's what we have to continue in faithfully. So again, neglecting or separating from fellowship is foolish, selfish, arrogant, and not of the spirit of God. Let's look at Jude. This I want to read in King James Version specifically. It reads a little bit different in New King James. I personally don't like how the New King James says it because I think it's not um, a great representation of what it says in the Greek. So Jude verse 18. I'll read it in both though. Says in verse, well, let's start in verse 17, actually. That's the beginning of the sentence. 17 says, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ how that they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their uh, own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. Now, New King James can be considered in this sense because in verse 19, it says that they cause divisions. Now, a person who causes believers to separate from fellowship, of course, is still accurate on what this verse is saying. But if you look at it in the Greek, King James Version says it a little better, and this is more accurate. Verse 19 of King James says... These be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the spirit. That's a more accurate translation. It uses the Greek word for separate or divide and then uses the word for self right after it. This verse is saying just as much as it is not of the spirit to cause other people to divide, dividing or separating yourself is also not of the spirit. It then says it's sensual. Sensual means natural, carnal. It's all it is, is of the flesh. That's what sensual means. So again, emphasizing the importance of, or the severity, I should say, of the harm of separating yourself from believers. It says that it's of the flesh, it's sensual, and it's not of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yes.
2: Hebrews, back to Hebrews in, in verse 25, it, it you know, it talks about not forsaking assembly. And then in 26, it says, for if we go on sinning willfully, is that talking about generally sinning or, or about specific to not assembling? Do you know?
0: It is connecting. Well, I should say it this way. Remember verse 23 starts by saying the point that we're going for is to not waver. That's the top piece of bread, if you will. Then it talks about in the contents of the sandwich, make sure you assemble. Don't forsake that. Bottom bread is because we don't want you to sin willfully. And then it talks about losing your salvation, right? So it's not attaching losing your salvation entirely to assembling or not assembling. But what it is saying is that we have to assemble to exhort And keep each other without wavering because without that, a person's more vulnerable to getting into that willful sin and ultimately the endangerment that comes with it. So you can definitely teach on that passage that without fellowship, you're in much greater danger and you're a lot more vulnerable to falling away. What you can't use that verse to say is that you have to be in fellowship, otherwise you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying you're going to be in greater danger if you neglect fellowship. It's going to be, you're going to be more vulnerable without fellowship to falling away. But there are times where believers, for whatever reason, will just be alone for a while. Paul was one of them, but he didn't do that on purpose. He did that because, I mean, he was shipwrecked and spent months on an island where he was like the only guy that was following Jesus. just because he was trying to get to Rome. He spent prison, spent a lot of time in prison. So he didn't choose to neglect fellowship. He was just simply there because he had to be right. That's different. The danger we're talking about is willfully neglecting fellowship. And Hebrews 10 absolutely is teaching that without that, you're more likely to fall away, which yeah, supports Um, the, the main point on number two here, which is that believers who isolate or neglect fellowship are more likely to flounder in their faith and be deceived by the enemy. Last bullet point here. Every believer represents one part of the body. We'll look at those verses momentarily. If you are disjointed from the body, you are hurting the entire body, not just yourself. This is selfishness. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2. Let's read verse 18 as well, just to get the beginning of a sentence here. Says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. You are the joints and the ligaments. And you have to have all the joints and the ligaments in place in order to grow with the increase that is from God. Interestingly enough, that uh, Proverbs 18 verse one verse that we read earlier, where it says that a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. That Hebrew word for isolate actually means a body part that's disjointed. So the church didn't even exist yet when Proverbs is written. And it's already saying that isolating yourself is being a part of the body that's disjointed. Have you ever dislocated your shoulder? It's not fun. It hurts. It hurts your whole body, right? So Proverbs is saying being disjointed or being a joint or ligament, as Colossians 2 says, being disjointed hurts not only that the one member individually, but also the whole body. And contrarily, in order, to, in order for the church to grow with the increase that is from God, it requires the supply of every member, not just some. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 5. Romans chapter 12 in verse 5. Uh, let's start in 4 again, beginning of the sentence. Verse four says, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. If you are a member of one another, and that's stated in the same, same breath as saying that you are a member of Christ, then reasonably, reasonably. It's stating that you belong just as much to each other as you do to Christ himself. Because if you belong to Jesus as one of his children, other believers are your brothers and sisters, and they are members of the same body that you are a part of, they need you and you need them just as much as you need to be in Christ himself. It's impossible to be a believer and not be inseparably attached to the church. What makes you a believer is a part, what makes you a believer in part is that you are a member of the body of Christ, which is made up of many members. It's not just you and Jesus. You should absolutely have a you and Jesus relationship. You should have an intimacy with God. It should be you and him in that sense. Yes. But being a believer is not a lonesome walk. There's, there's no lone wolf thing going on here. If you are a believer, you are a member of many members. You are attached to each other. We need each other in order to accomplish everything that God has called us to accomplish and to be all that the church is. So keep in mind, even though there are plenty of verses that say you are a member of Christ, there are plenty of other verses that say you are a member of one another. We belong to each other just as much as we belong to Christ. And that's why again, first John is saying, if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love God whom you've not seen? Right? So we should honor each other, respect one another, just as we would respect Jesus. You think about it, you know, if Jesus was standing in the room, we wouldn't we probably would be a lot more careful about what we say to him. Let me just imagine that. If he was standing right there, center of the room. Hey guys. We would be really, really careful about what we'd say. We really want to make sure we don't trip up on our words. And we would want to make, I don't want to say anything foolish. I don't want to say anything incorrect. I really want to make sure I don't say anything disrespectful. Right? But then when it comes to people, especially other believers, we're a lot more loose with our words. We say things that are disrespectful, say things that are rude or incorrect or whatever, whatever it might be. And if you are a member of one another, just as much as you are a member of Christ, then you should have the same consideration for how you speak and behave around believers as you would have for how you speak and behave around Christ himself. That's the, the heart and the essence of having honor for one another, which is talked about repeatedly in Romans, first Corinthians, so on and so forth. Yes.
2: I don't know if you have that posted, but we last week read that, remember a long time ago you wrote that thing on honoring uh, each other?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And we've been reading that to each other and taking that apart, kind of, and confessing that. Mm. Um, and uh, I just, is that posted on your website or I mean, that's, that's an awesome thing to print out and have and go through with um, other believers.
0: I don't. It's not on the website. It's probably saved somewhere on my laptop. But even if it isn't, we can always, if we have to, email, scan, scan it or something, and try to get more of it out. But um, there was there was a list that was called the the one another statements. Is it that one or is it a different one? Oh, that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a good idea. Another thing to have more available. But yeah consider that again. So that is uh, basics presenting the importance of being in fellowship. Practically speaking, keep in mind that again, this is not me trying to obligate everyone to show up in church more in the traditional sense, because that's not the focus anyway. The focus is whether you are truly in fellowship with believers. And that means you, you do have to be intentional about that. You have to be proactive about that. It is not the responsibility of everyone else except you to be in your life. You have a part to play in this. You have to reach out to people. You have to be present. And you have to exhort one another. Notice that the verse doesn't say show up to be exhorted. you know it says exhort one another it's always outward focused meaning you're supposed to show up for what you give because in giving you receive jesus himself said this it's recorded in acts chapter 20 and verse 35 in giving you receive so if in giving you receive then if you show up to give you're going to get but if you show up to get you're not going to get and people won't like you and then you'll think it's their fault Right? So show up to give. And if you give, you're going to receive. That's what, that's what parts of the body do. They contribute. They add to the body. They don't take away. So keep these things in mind. Um, you should be placing a, a massive amount of reverence and honor and gratitude on the fact that we're able to gather together, period, without any, having any fear of resistance or persecution. At least not yet. There is going to come a day when we won't have that same kind of freedom. And that's why Hebrews 10 is saying, get really good at gathering because you're going to need it a lot more the closer we get to the day of the Lord. Right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of isolation out there. A lot of people going astray and we will need each other so much more. Once we, as we get closer to that day, there is, uh, in fact, such great importance placed on this that Jesus, I won't get into this in detail because I think it's kind of a can of worms and I don't want to open it right now. <laughs> but Jesus did teach when his his, his uh, mother and brothers were trying to talk to him. This is in Luke chapter eight. And his disciples said, hey, like your family's trying to get your attention. And, and he says, the people who hear the word of God and keep it are my mother, my sister, and my brothers. His point was that believers People who with you obey the word of God are at the end of the day going to be relationships that are more important than the relationships you have with your biological family because relationships with believers last forever. Biological family is temporary. And in the day of the end, the Bible says that you're going to see families turning on each other more than ever. Jesus taught this in Matthew 10 and said that people are going to be betrayed by their siblings, their parents, their children. So if you, if you are so attached to temporary human relationships, when betrayal comes from those relationships and you don't have believers to lean on, that family that will last forever, you will have nothing at that point. And you get alone, you'll be more vulnerable. So that's why it's so important to place a massive priority on your relationships with believers, because those relationships will last forever. In Luke 16, Jesus said to win friends ultimately to the kingdom of God so that they will receive you into an everlasting home, it says. That everlasting home, the household of God, it's what, is what's most important. So prioritize that. Keep it in your heart. Keep it close. Um, and that will give you a foundation for c- bringing quality into fellowship you have with believers moving forward. Amen? Let's pray. Yes. Yep.
1: What do you think is more important, uh, ministry to the general public or the assembly, like the home church? Because I'm getting the impression from some feedback we get that the home church is diminished compared to that kind of ministry. Diminished? Yeah, like it's almost not important compared to the ministry, to the public. Mm.
0: So I, I, I see them as inseparably connected because like, yeah, back here, Marcy just commented, you know, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations and acts or the very next verse in Matthew 28 says the very next thing you do after you make a disciple is you baptize them. And Acts says that what they're baptized into is the church. So you're not actually ministering to the public if you're not in fellowship with the church or having souls added to the church. If you're just, you know, preaching the gospel to the lost and you're not involved in a church anywhere, if we're talking about practically speaking, yeah, you'll be able to influence some people towards Christ. But as an individual, you, you won't be doing everything that scripture tells you to do in terms of your involvement with people, because every individual's involvement with people, the Bible says, is meant to be a combination of preaching the gospel and exhorting the saints and equipping the saints. So you have to have both in order for one or the other to be what they're meant to be. Without evangelism, you're not going to be adding more to the church, but without the church, what are you adding people to? There's no, there's no place where they can, people that they can be with. And if they need people to be with in order to grow, like Ephesians four says, then without that, they won't be growing like they should. And sadly, we see in the world today that a lot of people who get saved oftentimes don't know where to go and don't know where to start. Because they kind of found it on their own and God uses that and it's great. Amen. But the way it's supposed to work, at least the model that's in the book of Acts is that people would preach the gospel to people and receive those people into their home and into their friendships immediately. And they would, they'd be received into the church just as readily as they were received into the kingdom of God. And it was just considered all one thing. So, to finish, I wouldn't separate them and call it one or the other. It's both. You have to have both in order for it to be what it's meant to be. Yeah.
3: I could just comment. I know personally for me when I was first saved, I felt like God had me in a bubble just to learn the word and read the word. And he really protected me and helped me hunger for the word. And then Paul himself, who was the Pharisee of Pharisees, I think it was 13 years He was isolated to get the doctrine correct before he went to Peter and John. And they were like, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) You're not ready, you know, first when they first saw him. So he had some, you know, he had to be renewed in his mind too. And then I think it's, you know, building that relationship is first. And you, the Holy Spirit will show you, you know, you're ready to share your testimony or you're ready to help this person find the Lord. And, and he just takes you step by step into from having that personal relationship to sharing it and going out and making disciples. So it's it's like a balance for me now. I start to crave wanting to share the gospel, and so I'll go do it. And But then there's times where I, I crave just wanting to be in his presence. It's learning to balance that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but well, you do have to have your own re- relationship with God. Like I was saying earlier, there is an intimacy with God that you'll have. But preaching the gospel out in the world and being with the saints are also important. And we have to be doing all of that, you know, not just one or the other. Right. Yeah. Was there more that you had to add, Dave, or does that cover it? I was...
1: Doing the math, and if i just going to home church and then meeting here, if that was the only connection I had to the body, that would be about 3% of my time. Mm-hmm. It, that's that's not enough, right? And doesn't it say that they met day to day?
0: Daily in each other's homes, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's referring to the whole congregation, which at that time was the, was it five 3,000? that were first converted when Peter, Peter first preached 3000, 3, men, uh, excluding their wives and children. So with their wives and children, it's, you know, significantly more, those people it says as a whole were daily in each other's homes, which tells you that believers were involved in each other's lives on a level that they saw each other a lot more often than just once a week. That's the idea. Um, the idea of having a minimum of once a week is also supported in scripture. There's a verse in acts, uh, 20, 20, I believe, or 21 that says that they would meet on the first day of the week. And that was when Paul would come and he would teach when he was staying in that part or in that region.
1: That was all the home churches.
0: It doesn't say, it just says that the disciples came together on the first day of the week in that region. So that's like a verse that alludes to a minimum of a once a week thing, but also in the same passage, it says, Paul taught them all night long. Um, But that was before he was going to leave to another region. So that kind of makes sense. It was kind of like a going away party for Paul of sorts, but it does say the disciples met on the first day of the week. So we know that they did at least that. And Acts says they were daily in each other's homes. So they had some kind of regular expectation. We're going to meet this amount but then they were also involved in each other's lives enough. In addition to that, that they saw each other a lot more than just once a week. So I did the math one time. The same type of thing you're talking about, and yeah, it's about three percent, which is not enough. <laughs> you know, you should you should have more. Well, portion, yeah, portions of the church in Jerusalem, namely, were living communally uh, simply because persecution. They there wasn't really another option in that region in that time, but there were there were other parts of the church in different parts of the known world that didn't live communally. But yeah, did you have a question or comment? Well, they had their own work, you know. Um, I mean, I'm not sure. We don't know the exact hours what their work was, but how time looks. Yeah. Anyhow, so yeah, that's the. Uh, it's a great comment that Dave was just making about time because we, we, ha- we should be involved with believers more. You know? um, if, if there's not friendships being developed with believers, then that's where you're going to start lacking and that's where you see it to start to, to seem unfulfilling where there's not, there's not that, that real fellowship, the intimacy with believers that we're going for. You know? So that's why it's important to prioritize and to give to people in order to, in order to build those relationships. Any last questions or comments about anything? No? Okay. So, yeah. So, like before I said, um, I'll pray. And you guys can add anything if you want. Once I just pray as a starting point. Um, Whoever wants to add anything can.